I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to the Audible Original American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts. American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. My arrival in New York City after being drafted by the New York Giants mirrors the tales of countless others in and around the Big Apple. I was 22 years old when I got to New York, and I haven't left since. In that time, I've realized that all the things they say about the place, the city that never sleeps, the greatest city in the world... If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. They're all true, especially that last one. This is the story of how football came of age, grew up, and ventured out on its own from its small, humble roots to the grandest stage in the capital of the world. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is American Football Chapter 6, A New York Giant. Jim Lampley here at the Polo Grounds. It's the 12th round. And 55,000 screaming boxing fans are here to see Gene Tunney trade blows with Tommy Gibbons, the only man alive to have gone the distance with the great Jack Dempsey. The mayor, movie stars, mobsters, everyone who is everyone is here. Tunney again on the attack. Can Tunney do what Dempsey couldn't and knock this scrapper out? He's chasing Gibbons around the ring. There's a heavy right cross by Tunney. And Gibbons is on the mat. He gets to his feet, but oh my, two more flush rights by Tunney. Gibbons is down, down, down. The crowd at the polo grounds on its feet, and no one could possibly be happier than Gene Tunney's manager and promoter, Billy Gibson, who just soaks it all in from ringside. Billy Gibson was a kingmaker in boxing, America's other most popular sport with baseball in the summer of 1925. And it was into his office that Joe Carr walked looking for a partner to bring the NFL to New York. But to understand how Carr had come to New York personally, we need to spin back and see how his battles with George Hallis shaped the NFL's current priorities. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. A lot of authority is given to the commissioner uh, to make decisions on best interests of the teams, ultimately. Everyone talks from time to time about, well, you work for 32 owners. Yes, but I feel I work for every player, uh, every coach, every fan. The best interest of the game means that it's going to be, hopefully, positive for everybody. Carr's priority as league president had been to build pro football's first constitution, imposing an order and clarity to the game that was sorely lacking. The Staley Swindle title controversy of 1921 challenged that order. So Carr responded by giving the league an official start and end date. So no additional games could be added at the last moment. A shot across Hallis's bow. Here's Joe Carr's grandson, 
James Carr. Through his, his experience with the panhandles, he had become a first-rate administrator, and that was his forte, administration. Now the other owners and, and uh, players were not administrators, and so they needed somebody with a good business sense to develop uh, the league. Chicago sports expert Jack Silverstein. Joe Carr worked on creating something that was sustainable. I keep coming back to the word structure. He was interested in creating and pushing for rules to the league. Roger Goodell. The commissioner is responsible for overseeing the good of the game, ultimately. It's not just the game itself as, as the competitive side of it and the league, but it's also on the future of the business and, and where the league moves forward. Thanks to Carr, the league now had guardrails addressing some of its biggest issues. First, the reserve clause. Teams were barred from approaching players on another team until the team's manager notified the league president that the player would be a free agent. Here's general counsel and co-head of football at Rock Nation Sports, Kim Mayali. Teams can't try to poach other players who are under contract with another team. Um, unless they're, you know, going into free agency. And teams who get caught tampering um, get heavily fined <laughs> and disciplined. So they're definitely disincentivized from doing that. It, it, it goes on, but it's it's frowned upon. So that that's where the NFL comes into play and regulates the teams and um, what they can and cannot do. Second, players were prohibited from playing on two different teams in the same week. Third there would be no hiring players who still had college eligibility. This was needed to quell opposition from colleges who felt threatened by the new pro undertaking. But most importantly, teams were granted ironclad territorial rights, the key to any franchise agreement, ensuring that when owners were assigned a territory, it was theirs alone. Here's Joe Horrigan, the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Joe Carr came along and really put the, the game on a uh, professional level where he was transparent, he had standardized contracts, he had a code of uh, behavior, he had a constitution and bylaws for the league, all of which were essential to gain the public trust, which you know, came slowly but eventually did come. Here's James Carr again. He saw that as the league was growing, that it, began, it, it was showing its potential. And that's because I think they had a firm foundation and he's been quoted as saying, I can see the day when professional football will be uh, the biggest sport in America. He had that ambition and that vision to stick with football and develop it. It wouldn't take long for Carr's new rules and his authority to be tested. And it would be no surprise who tested them first. Jack Silverstein, again. When I think about George Hallis, he had parts of Bill Belichick in him. Someone who is obsessive, detail-oriented, just lives, lives to win. Looking to strengthen his team, Hallis wanted to sign a player from the Green Bay Packers named Hunk Anderson. Under Carr's new reserve clause, Hallis couldn't acquire Hunk unless Green Bay designated him a free agent, something the Packers were not about to do. Hallis knew that Carr's new rules only applied to NFL teams. Shortly thereafter, an article appeared in the Chicago Tribune about how Green Bay's player coach 
Curly Lambeau, had hired college students to play in NFL games under assumed names. Here's Chris Willis, the head archivist of NFL Films. When the Packers were accused of hiring college players uh, from Notre Dame, uh, some of the reports came out, especially in Chicago, <laughs> that maybe it was Hallis uh, that planted the seed that uh, these uh, men were playing under assumed names. But some people said, oh, House wouldn't do that just to get a guard. No, maybe he would. <laughs> he was that type of competitor. Carr was happy to have the Packers and their football-hungry fans in the NFL. But if the league was going to be taken seriously, it had to adhere to its own rule of law. He expelled the Packers from the league, sending a clear message that neither Carr nor the rules were to be trifled with. Curley was pissed. The Packers were out of the NFL. If the team were going to continue as a pro football club at all, they'd need a new source of income fast. Calling a Hail Mary, Hurley approached local Green Bay businessmen and together they created a new ownership structure, making the Packers a publicly owned nonprofit. Aaron Rodgers. Without an owner, there's nobody uh, whose pockets we got to line. You know, there's every dollar that comes in the team, we can put directly back into the team. We've done incredible improvements around the facility. Uh, all down Lombardi Avenue, where the stadium sits. We have a board of directors. We have a team president who kind of is the de facto owner of the team as far as his decision-making abilities. Um, but I do think we cut out a lot of uh, politics and stuff by not having an owner. Original shares of the Packers went on sale for $5, and any fan who bought five shares would get a season ticket. All initial 1,000 shares sold easily. And the Packers remain a publicly owned nonprofit to this day, the only one in the NFL. Here's NFL Hall of Famer Leroy Butler. They're the only one that you can just run into an owner in like a local pick and save or something. No other team can say that. Jerry Jones is not going to be walking around in like a pick and save. And that's why I intentionally played 12 years with the Green Bay Packers and took three pay cuts to do it because I knew the fabric of the team and the DNA of the team is the people that you see every single day. Our town is 80 to 100,000-ish, but I don't know what we're counting as far as that goes, and our stadium seat's just under 80, and we get sellouts, and there's 50-year waiting list, and it's the biggest, uh, you know, uh, argument in the divorce cases, who gets the season tickets, and I think it's a special bond that we have with with our community here in, in the region, and it is unlike any other place. Lambeau petitioned President Carr to readmit the Packers to the NFL, arguing they were now technically a new entity. Carr agreed, and it was a win-win all around. Alice got Hunk Henderson for the Bears, Green Bay got a new source of funding and to stay in the league, and Carr got to keep the number of NFL teams from shrinking further without bending his own rules something the SVP of communications for the NFL knows all about. Tracy Perlman. Integrity. Since the day I walked in this door, that has been the number one priority and the number one value of the National Football League. Gentleman Joe had weathered his first crisis masterfully, but new high-pressure systems were lining up behind him. The next to roll in came from Hallis, too. As if landing Anderson wasn't enough, he also wanted to add Patty Driscoll, his pal and former teammate from their playing days with the Navy. Problem was, 
Driscoll was already a star player for the Chicago Cardinals. Again, Carr's reserve clause meant Hallis couldn't sign Driscoll unless the Cardinals agreed, which they had no intention of doing. And yes, for those wondering, this is the same Cardinals organization that moved to St. Louis and then Arizona and is actually the oldest franchise in the NFL. Here's Joe Harrigan. There was the you know, north side and the south side. It was great. The Chicago uh, Cardinals always had a competitor in, in the same city, but it was automatically a home and away game that, that neither team had to travel. The population base uh, and the divisiveness of the city uh, made it possible to have you know, two teams and two fan uh, bases that were plenty sustainable. Somehow word got out that talks were underway. Paperwork from the Bears was found with Patty's name on it, offering him partial ownership if he changed teams. Hallis stuck to his guns, claiming it was a clerical error. He convinced no one. Tracy Perlman. If people are going to question what's happening on the field, it's going to be detrimental to everyone. And that means players need to abide by it, coaches need to abide by it, team staff, league staff. And if I don't believe in it, all I'm going to do is question what I see. Carr didn't just overrule Hallis. He publicly censured him. Then he went one step further, showing Hallis that he wasn't the only one who could nitpick league statutes. Carr declared that when the Decatur Staleys became the Chicago Bears, they not only changed cities, they changed ownership and technically were required to reapply to the league as a new entity. Therefore, because the Bears were not properly registered with the NFL, none of its players were covered by the reserve clause, and all were now free agents. Curly Lambeau must have loved the karma coming around on that one. Here's NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Probably my least favorite part of this job is discipline, whether it's discipline to a club, discipline to individuals. There needs to be consequences for that to, to maintain the public confidence in the NFL. If you're doing it to, to make sure not just the public, but L32 teams and everyone who participates in that feels that they're playing on the same playing field with the same rules and in protecting that integrity of the game. Here is journalist Jay Glazer. A lot of times the commissioner protects a lot of these owners. A lot of times the commissioner is squarely in the bullseye of a lot of these owners. Man, it's a job. I wouldn't want it. Hallis managed to re-sign his entire roster, except for his star, Guy Chamberlain, who signed with Ralph Hay and the Canton Bulldogs. Chamberlain went on to lead Canton to that year's league title. A truly bitter pill for a win at all costs kind of guy like Hallis. But the Canton Bulldogs, who were league champs in both 22 and 23, decided that despite their success on the field, they couldn't make the numbers work. It was the end of an era in Canton, Ohio. Small and mid-sized industrial towns couldn't generate enough revenue to compete for quality players, and those same teams had to rely on away games in big cities to even make their payroll. Nowhere was this more apparent for Carr than his own team, the aging panhandles. They'd gotten so old that Ted Nesser got to play alongside his 19-year-old son, Charlie, the only father-son duo to play together in NFL history. With a heavy heart, Carr pulled the plug on his own team. Carr concentrated all his efforts as league president 
on steering the NFL through its growing pains. Cities were the future of pro football. Carr had already lured in a team from Philadelphia, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, in 1924, and had franchise applications from Cincinnati and Detroit. But there was no question the NFL still needed a team in the biggest city of them all. At the time, New York had about 5.6 million inhabitants, twice as many as Chicago. And New York was projected to have 7 million within 10 years. Once again, the NFL Hall of Fame's Joe Harrigan. Carr had been uh, trying to get a franchise in New York almost from the very beginning. And in 1921, there was a franchise called the New York Giants. And the problem he ran into is that there were blue laws in New York State, so the, the franchise went away. It wasn't until 1925 that the blue laws were lifted uh, that it would allow pro football or any other entity to operate on a Sunday. Jack Silverstein. There was this move in the middle of the 20s to get into these bigger cities. Joe Carr was interested in making sure that teams were located in big markets where there was already a thirst for sports. There was an effort to make sure that all of the teams in the NFL were big hitters. At the next owner's meeting, Hallis said what Carr was thinking. Hallis believed the only way for teams and the league to survive financially was to expand fast. He moved to send Carr to the Big Apple to plant the NFL's flag there once and for all. Everyone agreed. The only question now was, who in the world would take such a chance, given the cost and history of failure that preceded it? And that was why in May 1925, Joe Carr stood in boxing promoter Billy Gibson's office, hoping to rope in NFL's newest owner. Carr knew Gibson from the short-lived 1921 pro football effort and set up a meeting with him as a likely prospect to buy the New York NFL franchise. He invited Dr. Harry March, a friend who was the team doctor on the infamous 1906 Canton Bulldogs team, and now a successful New York City physician. Carr made his pitch. Would Gibson, who knew how to sell knocking heads better than anyone in the city, like to field a team? Gibson shut him down immediately. He'd already taken a gamble on football a few years earlier, and it failed spectacularly, folding after two games. Here, they would have to compete with the bright lights of Broadway, the music of Harlem, picture palaces just about everywhere, and a whole second city of gin joints driven underground by prohibition. If you were going to put on a show in New York, it better be great. Pro football, at least as far as Gibson could see, was for farmers who played in the mud. Carr was taken aback. He'd been so confident in what he was selling, he hadn't really imagined Gibson might balk. But that's when fate, or happenstance, or dumb luck stepped in, depending on which account of the story you believe. There was a knock at the door, and a tall, gregarious, 38-year-old Irishman with the gift of gab entered. He had staged some boxing matches in New York City and was interested in getting deeper into the fight game. He had supposedly come to see Gibson about buying a piece of boxer Gene Tunney. Here's Joe Harrigan. Joe Carr, was he was telling them, I'm going to get a franchise in New York. And Billy Gibson said, well, I'm not interested, but my friend here, uh, Tim Mara might. And Tim Mara had never seen a pro football game in his life. That's right. Tim Mara. If the name sounds familiar to you, well, 
it means everything to me. The story of the NFL is also the story of my great-grandfather. Timothy James Mara grew up on New York's Lower East Side, the son of a cop in an Irish neighborhood. By 13, he had a paper route that had him in and out of diverse ethnic enclaves all along Lower Broadway, including many bookmaking parlors, which were legal back then. Over time, Tim started carrying bets for bookies along with his newspapers, learning the ropes of that business and making lifelong connections. Known for his quick wit and easy smile, Mara was the definition of street smart, his personality said to fill any room. At 15, his father died suddenly, forcing Tim to grow up in a hurry. He quit school and opened a stall at Belmont Park, operating as a bookmaker on his own, where he honed his sales pattern and practiced making complicated odds calculations in his head. Here's John Mara, president and CEO of the New York Giants. He never uh, had much of an education, but my father said he was always very good with numbers at computing the odds and knowing what was a risky bet, what was not a risky bet. And here's my father, Chris Mara. I don't know how many uh, bookies in this world are long-term thinkers, but he was one. (laughs) In the summer, he followed the ponies up to Saratoga, the Hamptons of its time, where this poor immigrant kid would impress power players like the Astors and Vanderbilts enough to be invited to their exclusive parties. Tim also came to be friends with New York Mayor Jimmy Walker and Governor Al Smith, connections that would later help him obtain licenses for boxing matches or running his many businesses. As a gambler, Tim was never afraid to bet on himself. A serial entrepreneur, he was quoted as saying, I never passed up the chance to promote anything, not just for the profit, but for the challenge. Most of the time, his gambles paid off. By the time he met Joe Carr, he had a successful bookmaking business, a coal company, and a law bookbinding company. Yet despite all his entrepreneurial drive and ability to handle himself around rough characters, Tim was a devout Catholic and family man with a wife, Lizette, and two sons, Jack, 16, and Wellington, 9. He was a very devout Catholic, attended Mass every day, as my father did. In this way, Mara and Carr, two smart, hardworking, self-made Irish immigrants, had a lot in common even before they met in Billy Gibson's office that day, even if neither of them knew it at the time. For Carr, it was the pitch of a lifetime. He spelled out what he saw as a unique opportunity, owning an NFL franchise in New York City. Mara asked what it would cost. $500 for the franchise rights, all in, Carr responded. Mara paused and then said, A New York franchise in anything should be worth $500, even a shoe-shining league. I'll take it. And so it was that NFL president Joe Carr sold Tim Mara, a guy he'd just met, a pro football team located smack dab in New York City. John Mara. I think it was a challenge to him. He wanted to see if he could do it, if he could if he could promote the game and make it successful. I think he looked at it as a low-risk investment. I mean, he was putting down $500 and, and getting this franchise and, you know, what was, there to, what was there to lose. 
Chris Mara. He could have continued to be successful and happy with all those businesses, but by definition, gamblers, they took risks. Um, maybe $500 doesn't seem like a huge gamble, but my grandfather could have been subject to ridicule and tarnished his reputation had the Giants or the NFL failed. Um, but I never forget that he was the one who took the chance and he made all this possible. Here's former New York Giants quarterback, Eli Manning. You always have to give thanks and give credit to the people that came before you, really set the, the standard and, and, and raised the level um, of interest in the game of football, brought in so many fans and you know, making it the most popular game uh, in America now. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. I don't underestimate the challenges that they had, starting with nothing and the challenges of really not having some of the resources that we have today and the popularity that we had. They, they, had, to, they had to expose people to the game. <laughs> now, if it strikes you as crazy that these men who'd just been introduced agreed to create the NFL's New York Giants in the span of a single, short meeting without a player on the roster or a stadium to play in, and opening day just over four months away, you're not alone. But as Tim Mara always said, the Giants were founded on a combination of brute strength and ignorance. The players supplied the strength. I supplied the ignorance. He was very self-deprecating, and, and uh, I, I heard that many times. Um, I think he was a little smarter than uh, he would let on. I think that served him very well in terms of building this business. But what Mara lacked in experience, he made up for in enthusiasm. He also had two highly opinionated advisors on hand 24-7, who never hesitated to tell him exactly what they thought. Tim's sons, Jack and Wellington, loved football and were thrilled to finally have an NFL franchise in their city. They were a focus group of two, and their approval meant everything. Having his two sons there and then in later years being able to work with them uh, in the same office, that was a huge part uh, of his motivation here. To this day, you know, we have a very, very large family and our games are the event that brings everybody together on, on Sundays. I really believe our, our franchise is, has been highly competitive, but it's, it's been built on you know integrity, honest, and fairness. Um, that was true in 1925, and it's true today. All, the Giants have always operated on the premise, what was good for the NFL was good for the Giants. I regret that I didn't get to ask them more questions about the good old days, you know, all the great Giants Charlie Connerly and Gifford and Fran Tarkenton and Lawrence Taylor, just uh, legends over the years, over his unbelievable career of being owner of the New York Giants. For all of Mara's gumption, lots needed to be done in order to build a high-quality pro football team from scratch. Dr. Harry March was named team secretary and helped form the squad. They hired an experienced college coach, Bob Fulwell, who believed the key to success was not to have one or two stars, but to have great former college players at every position. Mara knew that New Yorkers loved a winner. Hell, they demanded it. And fans would not stick around if they didn't get one. When you have your first 
uh, practice as a rookie and you overthrow a receiver, that's the headline. Eli has a, a rough first practice, overthrows receiver. It was a warm-up drill that they're catching. So you can understand, well, you know, wow, this is, this is going to be interesting. The New York fans can be difficult. They're passionate. They expect certain things to go out there and compete and to play at a high level. When they do, you know, boo you, you're, you're probably deserving of it because you haven't done very well. With that in mind, Mara told March to get him the best pro talent money could buy. March hired big-name college grads from area schools like Yale, Syracuse, and Rutgers. To top it off, the Giants also went after the one and only Jim Thorpe, even if he'd lost a step or 10. Thorpe had spent the last few years playing on an all-Native American traveling team, the Oorang Indians, which exploited his connection to his native roots with halftime shows and wild non-football-related performances. Once again, Joe Harrigan. They signed Jim Thorpe, uh, you know, he, yeah, the consummate gate builder, uh, well beyond his prime. Uh, but it was, again, you know, uh, everybody knows who Jim Thorpe is. Nobody knows who Tim Mara is. Nobody knows who the New York Giants are. But anything that had Jim Thorpe showing up, even if he's just doing a punting exhibition at halftime, was going to sell tickets. The Giants played and lost their first two games of the 1925 season on the road because the polo grounds were still being used for baseball. For their hometown debut, the Giants wore new red and blue uniforms with numbers so big it was said you could see them down the block. For Mara, this was the big test of whether this horse would race, let alone win. He was already out of pocket $25,000 for the team, even before the league's first exhibition game. So much for Carr telling him a franchise was $500 all in. Guess he just neglected to mention Mara still had to cover the cost of renting the field, paying the players, officials, coaches, ticket vendors, and all the other moving parts that comprise a successful pro team. I think he probably didn't anticipate you know, how expensive it was to pay players and buy the equipment and do all those things, the travel expenses and whatnot. So we started to, to bleed money. Their home opener was a rematch with the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets out of Philadelphia, who had just defeated the Giants a day earlier. Uh, the morning of that first home game, he was probably the most excited person in the city. Uh, he was just hoping he could get thousands of others to share in his excitement. Would the squad be able to bounce back? More importantly, how big would the crowd be? Mara's books were already covered in red ink. He needed a huge crowd to get the press and the city behind him. No small feat for an unknown team that started 0-2 and would have to compete with the Yankees, Cab Calloway, and Charlie Chaplin for attention. Here's Tracy Perlman. All of the entertainment options. How do you get fans to choose you? How do you get players to choose to play football? I have so many different options in front of me. Am I going to watch the game? How do we compete and rise above all of these other options? And we want to make sure that the pipeline gets filled with players and fans. But how do you make sure we continue to do that? Mara, though, had hardly been sitting around and twiddling his thumbs. He lived for the challenge of promoting and selling anything, be it a boxer, a jockey, or a whole football team. All that week... Mara pounded the pavement, telling anyone with an earshot about New York's next big thing. 
When that didn't fly, he'd grab people off the street and hustle tickets into their hands. If Tim was on the football Titanic, he was a one-man band who was going down with the ship playing his music. He believed he could promote anything, and he had never seen a football game prior to plunking down the $500 to buy the team. But I think he just felt like football in New York would have to succeed at some point in time if it was promoted properly. Chris Mara again. He wasn't going to start the giant franchise and then step back, you know, with his fingers crossed, hoping they'd succeed. He's going to do everything he could to ensure they would prosper. Um, That included getting tickets to fans any way he could. You know, he was confident if people were exposed to the Giants and pro football, uh, they'd return for more. That Sunday, Mara and his family went to church prior to kickoff. His son Wellington overheard Tim say to a parishioner, quote, I'm going to try to put pro football over in New York today. Maybe he was praying for large crowds, but it's likely his primary hope was that he could grow the game in, you know, the biggest city of the world. Probably said a lot of Hail Marys. At the polo grounds, Tim's son Jack joined him on the sidelines, while Wellington and his mom sat in the stands behind the Giants bench. My father told me the the, the story um, because I asked him about it. Uh, You know, why is our bench on the sunny side of the field? And he, he recounted how at his first game in the polo grounds, he and his mother, my grandmother, sat in the shade behind the giant bench, and it was cold that day. And uh, when he got home that night, he was sick with a cold. And so his mother uh, said to my grandfather, from now on, you put that bench, the giant bench, on the sunny side of the field. And it has remained there since 1925. For a taste of this historic home opener, here's legendary Giants broadcaster Bob Papa to set the scene. It's a blustery fall day here at the beloved Polo Grounds where the New York football Giants are playing their second game in two days against the Yellow Jackets. Do they have the legs to avenge yesterday's loss in Philly? We'll see. All eyes, of course, are on the great Jim Thorpe. Expectations couldn't be higher for those here to witness firsthand this legend of the game. Will he make his mark on this hollowed stage? We'll find out. Here's the kickoff. The Giants were quickly knocked back on their heels. The Yellow Jackets scored a touchdown and extra point in both the first and second quarters. Thorpe missed a field goal by a mile and was finally replaced. But in the fourth quarter, with the Yellow Jackets leading, the Giants changed tactics and began pursuing an exciting aerial game, much to the fans' delight. The teams are at the line of scrimmage on fourth down. The ball is snapped. McBride is back again to pass. Looks to the end zone. Oh, incomplete. Looks like that'll do it for the Giants today. But a strong effort all round as the crowd offers the new hometown heroes a round of applause in defeat. Sadly for Thorpe, this would be his last game as a Giant, in more ways than one. On October 28, 1925, the New York Daily News wrote, A great athlete passed out of range of the last flickering rays of the spotlight yesterday. The question of whether the aging Thorpe could keep pace with the higher level of play in the NFL had now been answered. Here's Chris Willis once more. Tim Merritt knew having a franchise in New York, you need some stars. So he went after a very old Jim Thorpe to see if he can track some fans uh, and sell some tickets. Uh, The experiment didn't work very well after the first three games. uh, They just said this is not working and they released him. Uh, And that was the end of that experiment. But while it was the end for Thorpe in New York, 
It was just the beginning for the Giants and big city franchises overall. Despite a banner headline reading, 27,000 see Giants lose pro football opener 14-0. The New York Times painted a rosier picture, stating, quote, Never before has so large a gathering attended a professional game. New York is, evidently, ready to support a professional league football team. Eli Manning. Well, and Tamara always said, hey, once a giant, always a giant. But uh, for me, it was important to, to only be a giant. I came to the New York Giants when I was 23 years old. I'm 41 years old. I'm still living here. And, you know, this is, this is home. When you get drafted to a team and you start your career with a team, I think it's the goal to try to finish with that team. And it doesn't happen very often these days anymore. Eli's older brother, Peyton Manning. You know, if you're fortunate enough to get drafted, to me, it's kind of exciting to see where you got to go go work and go live uh, out of college. Eli handled playing in New York very well and all that came with that. Nobody pulled harder for Eli than me, and I, I, I'd say vice versa. Tim Mara might be disappointed with the score, but at least he could point to the record attendance. But the rest of the town didn't know what Tim did. The ugly truth was that only a fraction of the seats were actually paid for. People came, and that was encouraging. But moving forward, they'd need to pony up if Mara was going to keep this team going. Again, Chris Willis. They would get 20, 25,000, you know, for some of these early games. Uh, but that was a lot of free tickets. There's a lot of stories that Tim Mara would be on street corners just giving out tickets. Or he would invite, you know, kids or give them out at schools. Or, you know, so he was just trying to get fans to the stadium. But at least they were getting these larger crowd to say, hey, this is what the sport's about. As the season wore on, Mara accumulated losses totaling $40,000. Here's John Mara again. Walking out of Sunday Mass with uh, Al Smith, the then governor of, of New York, and um, uh, they were talking about professional football in New York and the team, and Al Smith's uh, advice to him was, you should get rid of it. It's never going to amount to anything. And my grandfather supposedly said to him, I would, but my boys would, would kill me if I ever did that. Chris Mara. Uh, Tim Mara thought the greatest city in the world deserved an NFL franchise. He delivered and began a 100-year relationship uh, between the team and the entire New York region, um, which stands today. It's safe to say his decision to put a franchise in New York put the NFL on the path to overwhelming success as it enjoys today. Football had finally arrived on the nation's marquee stage. Question is, who could the Giants put on that stage to stop the team from bleeding red? Stars like Thorpe and Pollard were quickly fading, and Mara had to move fast for the franchise to survive. He knew he needed more than a football star to cut through all the noise in his hometown. He needed someone who could be a national sensation. Enter a college football superstar known as the Galloping Ghost, who was just about to turn pro. Mara wanted him badly. But then again, so did everyone else. His name was Red Grange. For the team that could land him, this one player could change everything. 